0: Welcome to Shit We Do For Love, the podcast where we delve deep into the gap between our human need for love and connection and our secret belief that we're not really good enough to be loved. This gap has us forever trapped in people pleasing, procrastination and perfection and all sorts of nonsense as we try to measure up and be the person we've been told is worthy of love all the while missing the truth about how amazing we already are. I'm your host, the Love Your Bloody Self coach, Wendy Windle. Fancy having boundaries that get back time for you? Then head to wendywindle.com to pick up your free guide, because never having time for ourselves is just some more shit we do for love. Have you ever wondered if you will fit in, or ever tried to fit in? Maybe in advance of starting a new job or going to an event. We do this in subtle ways, right? Like maybe calling ahead to find out what the dress code is or slightly modifying the way that we talk in front of certain people. And the reason that we do this comes from our evolution. We survived by joining and sticking in social groups. But what if no matter how hard you try, no matter what you wear, no matter how you talk, there's no way you can fit in? That's what Arisan, Nicole, today's guest and I get into. On today's topic, we start off talking about her experience of racism and being othered. And then we get into some deep talk about how she used self-love practices to learn to fully accept her identity and then talk about how to switch careers because Arisan is a career and mindset coach and she uses career switching as a way to teach her clients how to love themselves. She's a certified life coach, peer mediator, and a fourth degree black belt in taekwondo. Much respect. Please enjoy, my love, this chat as we uncover the shit we do for love, trying to fit in. Arisan Nicole, welcome to Shit We Do for Love. It is a delight and an honor to be talking to you this morning. When you reached out to me with your topic, oh, so many memories <laughs> and flooding back, mostly of school. When you talked about the shit we do for love we're talking about today is fitting in and otherness, which on Mm -hmm. some level, every human can identify with right because we're pack animals, we are born to be in community in contact with other humans, and we signify even if we're not, we don't realize it on some level, we're signifying all the time to our group, and who we want to belong to. You know, if you think back to your teenage years and when you stopped dressing in the clothes that your mum bought you and decided to choose your own clothes, that's because you want to signify to a new group that you belong to them now. Like, you know, I don't want to belong to my family anymore. I want to grow up and move on and belong to different people, my own people of my choosing. That's what teenage tantrums about high tech versus Nike trainers are all about. But when you reached out to me, Arizan, you're talking about a much deeper level of otherness and fitting in. Tell me your story. Why did you reach out?
1: Yeah. Well, for me, it's around identity. Has been something even you know, high school uh yes absolutely i feel like we all fitting in through middle school high school but it really started even younger than that for me and that is because of my mixed race identity um and i am to kind of get background my mom's white and my dad's um half ecuadorian and white as well and so I, if you <laughs> see a picture of me, oftentimes people don't know what I am. It's like, I call it ambiguous passing, white passing. I have a younger brother, he's much darker than me. So he gets has, has had a way different experience than me, but also my dad wasn't raised by his Ecuadorian father. He was adopted by his white stepdad. And so he was raised by two white parents. And so he wasn't connected to his culture, growing up therefore i wasn't connected to culture growing up and so there it was this really interesting experience now i can reflect on it as a very interesting yeah. experience um where you know i get the question the first time i remember having this question i was 9 years old and someone asked me like where are you from and i was like confused like mm. uh i'm from balsborough i'm from seattle and they're like no 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 where are you really from? And I was just super confused. I like, I didn't know how to answer that. And then they try to go deeper like, where are your parents from? Cause really they weren't asking, you know, where I like grew up. They were trying to get to my cultural like, heritage, my, my racial and ethnic background. And that was the first of many, 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 many times throughout my life. I would get asked like, what are you and where you were from? And unknowingly back then that kind of put in this projection of when someone asks you, what are you or where you're from? Oftentimes, unless you're traveling, you know, and it's very often like the accent, the like, oh, where are you from? And you're like, okay, obviously you're not <laughs> here. You're not from here. But being asked that you automatically feel like you don't belong right there. Cause they're telling you like, I don't recognize you or I don't like, I can't relate with you and I need to understand where you're from. And so on. I didn't realize then that that was a microaggression. I thought it was like, oh, I don't belong here. I don't fit in here. And I've really struggled with my identity because I get that question. So I would never, I've never felt like I was white because I'm not. And I never felt I was dark enough or connected to culture, I didn't speak Spanish to call myself, um, Latina, Hispanic, uh, women of color, like those terms weren't really used very much growing up. So I feel like that's a more recent, um, terminology. And so because of that, I navigated what I call like the other box. Like literally you go to fill out like a race (laughs) ethnicity form and it says, like, pick what you have like four or five options and it's like pick one. And so I picked the other box. Like literally I picked the other box because I was like, I'm not, I don't fit here and I don't fit here. And so the other box kind of became my identity and how I navigated through life and that I've gotten better with it, but still to this day, because you will be surprised how many different forms you could go be going to get a massage and they ask you that question it gave me like an anxiety attack. Cause I was like, every single time I'm confronted with who are you, where do you belong? And you're like, I don't know where everywhere. No. <laughs> and so that really, that has shaped a lot of who I am and my, my journey through different parts of life. And I've had to really kind of navigate that and come to terms with that. Cause then again, I didn't talk about that struggle when I was a kid. I didn't, we wouldn't talk about, um, race in the household. So it was really something not until the last even three, four years that it's been something that I allowed myself to like dig in and understand.
0: Wow. And it starts at nine with that question. Where are you from? Which I think that's such a beautiful example to give us that You're not traveling, you know, (laughs) you're you're not out and about with a backpack. You're a child in your hometown and someone asks, where are you from? Which for anyone listening to this and thinking, oh, but that's just such an innocent question. That's just curiosity. I love that you actually called it a microaggression because I think this is where, this is where systematic racism, racism that white people are raised with, completely blind to how we've been raised, to ask anybody that we consider different to us, where are you from, is a microaggression. Because as you say, with that question, it doesn't come from a place of innocent, playful curiosity, it comes from a place of labeling. saying, I know who I am, I know who my people are, I know what my people look like, and you are not my people. So now you have to, at nine years old, and then for the rest of your life, Figure out who you are so that I, as a white person, can identify you and put you in a box and understand you better to make me feel more comfortable. And that's why it's aggressive, right? Because all of the onus is on you to figure yourself out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, the microaggression term, I didn't realize this was a microaggression until I was in my mid to late twenties and I was in a diversity training. And I was with one of my VPs who was a very lovely white lady. And we were having this conversation I just shared. I was like, oh yeah, I get asked, like, where are you from? Like, what are you? And at this time it has become so normalized because it's been happening since nine years old. I never thought to ask, does everyone have that question asked them? And Mm -hmm. she had like a look of horror on her face and was like, I have never been asked that question my whole entire life and I was like there was like all these like light bulbs <laughs> and things going off in my head of being like oh okay well yeah duh and so many of these things and we internalize and we don't talk about and so then we start adopting it as like an us problem like I just got to like get over it or I'm I'm being dramatic and really that's the, the uh, systemic racism in play because it thrives in silos and it thrives in silence and so i wasn't talking about it for 20 years of my life and i was adopting it as a me problem as something that i had to just get over instead of recognizing it as a systemic issue that multiple people were having and then the more i've talked about it the more i have felt connected with folks and other people are like oh i've had that happen to me or i talked about it with my brother for the first time like four years ago, I mean, you know, you know, things like that, you'd think my sibling, I would talk about these things more often, but it was just something that you didn't talk about. And so yeah, that, and, um, you're so exotic or you are so ethnic looking, like I are compliments, right. I get so many compliments that really are like, you're so different. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's very interesting to look back now and it, it still happens. I was just at dinner like two weeks ago, and I got a comment like that. And I'm like, come on, people, we're in 2023. I live in Seattle. <laughs> we supposed to be better, but we're not.
0: And again, it comes from that place of complete ignorance, right? Of somebody thinking that they're paying you a compliment and they haven't done the work to actually sit with yourself and think, wait, why do I think it's okay to basically tell somebody that they're really different looking? Because one of our fundamental needs is to feel like we belong. And there you Mm, are mm -hmm. having dinner with friends. And suddenly somebody has said, you don't belong. You're different. And you mentioned that like, you know, filling in a form to get a massage. I mean, my goodness, if you can't even get a massage without having to face the issue of race. And this is something I think that white people I'm going to speak for white people because I'm white Mm -hmm. my lived experience of being a white person is that I've never had to think about race Mm. and my box was always at the top Mm. you know and even that in itself I had to learn it really just in the last few years what an immense privilege that is nobody's ever asked me where I'm from or questioned my race and my box is always at the top which to me has always signal back to me you belong here you're normal everything else is other which is an immense privilege to have been given simply by accident of birth how does it affect you Arasan you said about that anxiety having to tick the boxes how did that play
1: out in your life every every part of my life (laughs) Cause just some things that you just said right there, uh, I wasn't normal, you know, I knew that. And, you know, things I did in my life, I like also wasn't very normal, like air quoting. Um, but at the flip side, like the word unique was really a trigger word for me because unique was different. And now I very much embrace my uniqueness, my, my wholeness, but back then embracing that uniqueness side of me just meant I was different. Like it just further kept that narrative of like, you don't belong and you're different. And it really also impacted. Um, I didn't have any control over, like I don't have any control over my race. I don't have control over um, how I was like, what I look like and how I was born. But the other things I could control was, you know, I went hard on being the really good student, being the good child, being um, what everyone else needed. And so then I had shaped my whole life trying to get this uh, sense of belonging and this sense of uh, community or this sense of enoughness from others. So I really just leaned hard into this outside validation needing to happen because I wanted, I craved that feeling of fitting in and belonging. And you know, as you know, (laughs) if you're constantly seeking outside validation and craving that, then you're not, you're not giving it for yourself. And that's not, you're not going to find really what you're, you're truly looking for until you, you know, stop and, and look inwards. And I was afraid of that. I was afraid of embracing my full self because I thought I would be equally too much and not enough at the same time. And so that really impacted every single part of my life and i didn't realize when it was happening that you know this was rooted in my identity issues and if you're having identity issues it's probably impacting every single part of your life because you're changing how you show up and so yeah i mean even when i was six so nine was the first time i remember that question but i was six years old it was remembering being um going to my first fashion show, because I really wanted to be a model. I begged my mom to do one of those like uh, mall fashion show modeling contests. Mm. And I skipped basketball practice to go, and I lost to these two blonde twins. And afterwards, I was so upset. I promised I would never miss a sports practice. Mm. And I immediately went into questions, asked my mom about Britney Spears. Like, does she have a boob job? Do people like her? Because she was blonde. And so too. then I was just being told images and stories that how I looked was not acceptable Too like, it wasn't how you were going to find love because I wasn't blonde. I wasn't petite. I wasn't skinny, you know, and that will always still really impact how I looked and viewed myself. And then you're going to told that hey, you look like an Amazon <laughs> queen or warrior princess or exotic or ethnic and then you're like just further like validated my like oh I'm not pretty because I'm not blonde and also these people are telling me that I'm exotic and like I belong in a jungle
0: oh and that pain of searching for validation on the outside which as you touched on we all have that in us, right? That we That's how we're trained in this society, it's how we're tra- trained in school to look outside of yourself for validation. But when you're looking outside of yourself for validation of the simplest level of, do I belong here? Is how I look acceptable? And getting the answer back, no, no, it's not. Like you can't win this race. The way you look is not what's normal here. It's not what's considered beautiful. You are beautiful, but in a fetishized, exotic, otherness way. And how are you supposed to feel at home
1: with that feedback? I didn't yeah. <laughs> at all. I never did. I my confident. The thing is, what's interesting is, I have. And I wouldn't even say it was a false confidence, but it was like an armor that I like learned to put on and I carried myself very confidently, the things that I did. And when it came to like romantic relationships, my confidence was shot. Like I was confident in my abilities. I was confident in my brain, but I wasn't uh, confident in like someone accepting me for me and like loving me for me. And so I yeah that confidence piece wasn't there when it came to like loving myself I had had none and even now I still have to like really be intentional with it because I can feel sometimes those old cycles and patterns slip back in when I'm like dating and and things like that because I instantly jump into I'm not the ideal like this is (laughs) I'm different I'm unique this is Mm. I'm not the person that you want to be with and so yeah it's a lot of self-love work and I didn't do that until, you know, my late 20s, early 30s.
0: And what was the turnaround for you, arasan What made you realize, wait a second, this looking outside of myself for validation is never going to work because I'm always hearing mm-hmm. a message that actually crumbles my confidence. How have you been able to claim your own identity for yourself, if, if that's even a goal for you?
1: Yeah, you know, I think through, you know, the self-love personal development journey, I've always been really into, you know, self-development. So it happened in kind of a couple different ways. One was <laughs> I dated enough uh, really toxic men that I got a therapist. <laughs> so that <Yeah>. helped. <laughs> um, <Sick>. that- <laughs> I love
0: how you did that. I feel like I was the same. You date enough toxic men that you're like, maybe a therapist is the next person i should be spending my time yeah. with
1: <laughs> yeah so there were some things that i uncovered there but honestly on the identity piece it i had like accepted i had accept, accepted that i was never going to have acceptance on it and then in 2020 when in the States, there was like the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And then all the the protests that happened at the time I was working in corporate America. And during that time, you know, you got all the messages and stuff like, don't talk to your black employees. Don't talk to your black friends. Like don't burden them with your questions or your like, Uh aha moments that you're just realizing that racism in America (laughs) exists is a thing is a thing and so that was the message but what happened was people (laughs) white people got it in their head of like oh don't talk to black people who do I talk to the next best thing another person of color not another white person and so that was the first time really in my life that I was like oh I am a person of color because you guys are making it or you all are making it very clear because you're coming to me with all these questions. You're coming to me um, with all these like burdens and this guilt because I can explain it to you. And I've had like, I've had like experience with some of the stuff, like obviously not, not at all the same level or degree. And so that right there, I think was the crack that I was like, allowed myself to think and talk about it. Because before, again, I thought it was just a me issue. Like I just thought it was something wrong with me that I just needed to love myself more. I didn't realize that these microaggressions that have followed me my whole life was impacting how I viewed myself, right? I just thought you just have to work harder or you just have to love yourself more and then that will fix. So when I realized and I accepted that I was a person of color too, because I was also in denial, I wouldn't say denial, but I didn't feel like I had the right to call myself a person of color because I had so many privileges um, in life. And because I am, for the most part, especially in the dead of winter, pretty white passing. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't feel like I could could own that. But, but not owning that part of my identity, if you're not owning a part of your identity, then that self-love piece is never going to be complete. And so that was kind of the first time that I was like, own your identity start. T- so I started talking with friends more. I started talking with other um, folks that had like, this experience. I started talking with my brother and hearing his stories and how he like, grew like these things that I'd never talked with anyone about. And so the more I talked about it, then I could accept it more than the things that I've been putting off because of fear, things I wanted to love, love to do. I didn't, it didn't feel as scary because I was like accepting Accepting myself for the first time. So, so many things that I had been avoiding, I was like, I'm not good enough for it. Or I'm not, you know, I had this narrative and my identity was supporting that narrative of like, I can't do things. And so, once I kind of accepted that part of my identity, then that kind of blew up the excuses I was <laughs> putting mm-hmm. of like, I can't do something. And so, you know, I really now, when I talk with clients and I talk with folks, I really do believe that you can't belong anywhere until you belong. To yourself first, and I needed that. Was kind of a key moment where I realized that I was okay uh, with me and who I was fully, and I didn't need that outside validation.
0: I'm gonna have you say that again <laughs> because that was absolute gold.
1: Yeah, it's you can't, belong- you can't anywhere until you belong to yourself first. Mm. Yeah, and. It's not simple. I mean, it's not easy. And it's simple once you you get there because you realize if you're feel good in your body, you feel like you belong in your body, then the connection and community and finding that outward belonging feels way different. Doesn't mean that the communities and and people that you love or connected to change. It just changes how you feel in those situations.
0: Mm -hmm. that's a powerful story to tell taking it straight from the i mean suddenly i can just from what you're saying i imagine this dilemma you're in of well i'm white passing nobody really treats me like a person of color i just get these microaggressions but maybe i'm just making it up maybe this is just a me problem right maybe this is just something i've internalized And then suddenly in 2020, it's like people come and they hand you your label. They hand you how they've been thinking of you all these years, but maybe never really said it, of you're not white. Yeah. Which forces you to confront the truth, one, of how they feel about you. I mean, imagine that for a start, must have been pretty overwhelming to be like, oh, okay, wow, (laughs) you know, way to let me know what you've been thinking of me all these years. (laughs) Okay, great. Oh, by the way, Arisan, um, you don't belong. So can you help us bridge into the Black community? Like, what?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was a hard month. (laughs) A lot of tears. Oh, a lot. My goodness,
0: but then to have the courage to say, okay, so I haven't made this up. Mm -hmm. This isn't a me problem. This is a problem of me existing in this world. And I have been leaving a part of myself out. Mm -hmm. How do you begin to call that part of yourself back in, in terms of self-love? Where did self-love begin for you? Mm.
1: I feel like it was really learning to be okay in my body because I have someone that am always been comfortable with being alone, but really intentionally being in my body was something that I didn't do. So meaning, you know, I tra- I've traveled like all over the world by myself, solo traveled all through my, like love that. And I remember, um, when an assignment my therapist gave me was sit intentionally by yourself like in your room not like at a restaurant or anything like that in your room no music no anything and just sit by yourself for 10 minutes mm, and the longest I was like oh, okay ever. <laughs> I was like okay yeah easy <laughs> Oh my gosh. She's like, do that <laughs> for like a week. And and I was shocked how uncomfortable I was, like how uncomfortable. And she had me like write in my journal after. And it shocked me because I have, you know, gone to restaurants and like I said, traveled and been by myself and been by with my thoughts, but never had I intentionally sat with myself by myself. And I think through that, and then I started reading some really uh, some books that really talked to how I was feeling. So being seen in like pages, knowing that how I was feeling was okay. That was like normal, that it wasn't something wrong with me allowed me to accept that I could change and navigate out of it. So it was really this kind of acceptance piece that wherever I was, like, it's okay. And, you're not alone. People are here. People have written plenty of books for you right in this moment. And so it's been a, it's, you know, it's a journey every day, but I also feel like a big piece was when I wanted to leave the corporate world and, and be a life coach was, which has been something I've always wanted to do. I was talking with my coach at the time, Mandy, and she kind of asked me because I had built my whole life for others. Right. So like what I was doing in my, my corporate world was like supporting employees in engagement, like how I, who I was in my friend groups and relationships and, and family. I was like the helper, the doer. And I had to sit with and realize, am I doing this thing that really matters to me for others again? Like, am I becoming a life coach for others? And It was the first time that I had like a mirror in my face being like, you built your life for others. So (laughs) this next step is for others. And I had to get really clear and learn how to put myself first. And that like, I'm doing this, I'm becoming a life coach. I'm helping people for me because I want to. And so that was really, I think the journey of learning how to go like, I want this and I'm doing this for me. But again, that took like the, (laughs) that was probably a year, two year before I could get to that point. Even be like, yes, for me, I'm okay.
0: And it begins, like you say, you're a great therapist, it begins with just having the courage to sit with yourself, right? Because we're so distracted, we're so (laughs) busy, and we're so, if you've been raised in any way to be the good girl as your way of navigating life, to be the server, to be the pleaser, then you're so busy taking care of everybody else, you don't even know what's going on inside of you. So that first 10 minute a day practice of just sitting and feeling and seeing what's Mm. inside your own head. Ooh, I remember when I started meditating, you know, about 15 years ago, this was the most painful 10 minutes of my day because Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much I hated myself. You know, I knew I could brush up on my confidence, have a little more self-esteem. I didn't realize that actually I hated myself, that there was a Mm. voice that was constantly saying, you're ugly, you're worthless, you're not good enough, you know, and and loads of different flavors of that. So just to sit with it was terrifying, and yet necessary. Right? Yeah. Because when you see, oh, this voice, that seems like it hates me, is actually just an internalized version of stuff other people have told me that I've come to believe Mm -hmm. as my truth. Now I get to begin the work. Now I get yeah. to sit with this voice, heal it, calm it, soothe it, you know, stabilize yeah. my nervous system. And I mm-hmm. love that then you end up two years later looking at your whole life with that. I've, I've got to do this for me. And I know, Arisan, listening to you saying, I decided to become a life coach for myself. I could feel a deep part of a good girl inside my tummy get super triggered, <laughs> You know, <laughs> even though <laughs> Even though this is part of my thing, I'm like, women, yeah. put yourselves first, then the magic yeah. happens. And yet there's still a good girl inside mm-hmm. of me that goes, you can't yeah. be a life coach or anything for yourself. That's how deep yeah. the conditioning is, isn't it? Yeah. And yet, what has been your experience of taking that brave leap and living mm-hmm. life for you, putting yourself
1: first? <laughs> I mean, it's been fantastic for me, it's really like, I think sometimes people think that, you know, you make that big leap and then, or you make that really big leap of like putting yourself first and then, and then it's done. And then everything's easy after that. (laughs) And what I've learned is it's never done. Like every day you have to make that commitment. And there's going to be times where you don't, aren't in alignment or something happened and you realized you were putting someone's needs um, first to your detriment or like whatever comes up, right? Cause we're human beings, like this is going to happen. And so really it's, it's, it's great now that I can make decisions in my business or how I make decisions with do it for me. And that's helps one. It helps me overcome my fear better. Cause I'm like posting on social media, for example, I don't post on social media for others. Like when I first started posting on social media and doing videos, I had a deep fear of it. And so for me, when I ground in to do it for me, like show myself that I can do it, it makes it not as scary. Cause I'm not allowing others opinions to impact how I show up. And so if anything, it helps me navigate life in a really wonderful way. And like I can always ground into that question and check in with myself. I'm not always like living it. There's, I mean, cause there's also people in my life that I want to take care of. And, mm-hmm. and I'm still a human being that's learning how to set boundaries with certain <laughs> people. Um, and it's something that it changes, I think, how you feel in your body. I like, my confidence is solid. My confidence is not that outward confidence I had before. It's to my core confidence and that negative self-talk doesn't exist in the same way or at all. Like I feel really good about how I talk to myself, how I show up and navigate. And so that really changes how I show up in the world because I'm not battling my inner dialogue as much. I'm more battling (laughs) my fears and understanding and, and influences outwards. If that, if that was a clear of that I mean I don't know no, if that, that makes totally
0: makes sense as well sense. and talking about as well the difference between that I've come to term it really is false bravado you know I mm-hmm. did not have a lot of confidence in my life but boy I've had plenty of false bravado you know I knew how to put on that face I knew how to be the life of the party and be dying inside as well you know and go home and recriminate myself for every stupid thing I said at that party. My God, how will I ever get over it for days afterwards? Because yeah. there was no confidence there. And that's what it's like to live for other people, right? That's what mm-hmm. it's like to be constantly searching for that validation outside, which will never come enough to fill the hole. And I feel mm-hmm. like this is the lie that we're living in this world, in this culture, right? Of everything is turned outward. You know, just earn yeah. enough money and get the big enough house and then get the big enough car and then get the beautiful enough partner and then get the perfect and then you will feel great. And it's such a lie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like yeah. people work themselves to death for other people, for the salary, for the house, for the car, for the imaginary partner and still then feel empty and yet to flip the script on its head and say, I'm going to work in a way that makes me feel great today. I'm going to put my needs first feels like betraying everything we were raised to believe. Right. Like when you said earlier, Oh, I'm going to put myself first. My fear pops up and says like, Oh my goodness, you can't put yourself first. And the story that comes along with it is because then you won't be part of society. Like you'll be Mm -hmm. a lone Mm -hmm. wolf and you can't live as a lone wolf because we're pack animals. You need to come and belong and fit in with us by putting us first it's like <laughs> there. yeah that's the story we're raised with right
1: yeah and I I talk to with clients especially when I first start working with folks and when I first started coaching I worked with around belonging identity and, and empowerment um is having this I say being selfish is actually the most self selfless thing you can do for yourself and others around you Because this narrative, and I always usually call this out of this narrative of you need to be the good girl, that if you put yourself first and you're a bad person and and you don't care about others and and you won't be accepted, I go, who put that narrative into your brain? Because you didn't come into this world as a crying baby with that narrative in your brain. You, that was put there intentionally. by society, by the patriarchy, by systemic oppression and systemic racism, because they profit and they win or they, they profit when you believe that about yourself, Mm -hmm. when you believe that you are not worthy as a woman, when you believe that you can't ask for what you want, that keeps those power dynamics that have been play in play for hundreds of years in play. And so it's to society's advantage those that control most of the money and the power to have you keep believing that about yourself. And so, you know, I say, uh, being a, a woman like that knows herself is one of the most radical things in, in the world, because being yourself is as a woman, a radical act in today's society, because everyone and everything is telling you do not be that yourself because it is wrong and it is bad. And I'm going to tell you 500 different ways. Why?
0: Oh, it's too much. It's not enough. It's just, you know, we we live in this Goldilocks world, right. Of like, you know, too hot, too cold too. It's just, mm-hmm. it's never, you're never just right until the day you decide
1: mm-hmm. I'm
0: just right. And I, yeah. I'm on board with you here, Arisan. I think it, this is the revolution and it is a revolutionary act as a woman, especially a woman of color to stand up and say, I'm enough as I am and I'm going to put my needs first and trust my body and trust the signals that my nervous system are giving me. It feels wrong, therefore it's wrong. I'm not doing it. This feels great, therefore I'm doing it is a massively radical, revolutionary act that we can all do in our own kitchens right now. How good are you at saying no? We all know we need boundaries, but we can fail at the first hurdle. Just saying no. Sorry, Zamo, it's not that easy. I've created a handy guide just for you how to build boundaries that get back time for you, go and grab your free copy over at wendywindle.com because learning how to say no is, it is the key to having more time in your diary and more time for you to do all of the work that it takes to actually build that habit of self-love. But you'll never get there until you learn how to say no. So go learn, grab that free guide, learn how to say no we rejoin the conversation as we talk about what no feels like and how to discern the difference between saying no out of fear and saying no because you really need to say no and we get into the work that Arasan does now helping women to switch careers if you've been thinking about a career switch or you're unhappy in your job definitely stay to the end
1: and it's a practice right because I feel like sometimes there's this idea that it's gonna feel good (laughs) coming through this (laughs) so (laughs) lovely
0: yeah oh if it feels awful you're probably on the right track (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah I'm like most of this like healing felt really shitty in the moment (laughs) I was like when is this done (laughs) and then after you're like oh that was necessary good thanks
0: (laughs) I've come to Um, realize that that feeling of abject terror is it was always there it's just it's like Mm -hmm. a zit right (laughs) i'm gonna get really gross now people but it's like a zit that was under the surface of the skin it's there and you feel it and it's annoying and it's affecting you but it hasn't come to a head and then when you start putting ointment on it to draw it out oh my Mm -hmm. goodness the yellow head that comes up on this thing is terrifying but it's on its way up and out. I'm I told you it's going to be yeah. gross. I don't know. I just made myself feel a bit sick. I don't know where that <laughs> came from. <laughs> I mean,
1: it's a, it's a good one. Cause I, I uh, I, there's difference between like a hard no is what I call it in your body, where you're just like, your gut is just like, no. And then there's fear mm. and uncomfortability. And so one of my, uh, things I follow now is that fear and that uncomfortability because that usually is me telling me that's the direction I need to go, that I need to lean into that fear. It's different than, and this is where knowing and trusting your body is important because it's different than feeling a no and being like, well, I'm feeling this, but maybe I just need to do this to prove something. That's Mm -hmm. different than this thing kind of freaks me out and pushes me out of my comfort zone. So I'm going to follow that and like lean into this uncomfortability. Um, and that's why I say it's like a practice in like building a muscle, because I also think you can't just if you've never felt this wholeness or this like full love, it can feel really um uncomfortable, but it can feel really hard to understand and like it, you almost can't accept it. So it's like almost you have to um expand slowly your body's ability to believe that you can accept it. So oftentimes it, and then sometimes it is a big breakthrough and all of a sudden you're feeling like everything I can do anything. And, but usually in my exp- my personal experience and my client's experience, like you have to build your threshold for this kind of self-love and this self-confidence and this fear. And again, that's why I, I kind of follow my fear because I know that's going to lead me to more abundance and more spaciousness. Um, but I think that sometimes feels counterintuitive when we want to feel yes. good all the well time. I think because it's a lie of
0: the self-help industry isn't it of like you know follow your bliss and you're like but this mm-hmm. feels terrifying and weird and awkward and all of my worst childhood memories about being bullied have come to the surface so that's not my bliss so I shouldn't do it right and part of self-love I love that you said this it is it's learning it's that discernment between what is a hard note and for me mm-hmm. as well I've learned that from working on myself for years and working with clients that it comes work on yourself first. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. if you feel awkward, icky or any way knownness around putting your trust outside of yourself in um, an organization or Mm -hmm. a purchase or a person, trust that no, just let that be a no. You'll you'll come and deal with it later on in another level. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to dealing with yourself, just that internalized, I'd really like to go traveling, for example, mm-hmm. but I feel scared and I'm worried mm-hmm. what that, All the only person in this situation you need to trust is yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Can you trust yourself to get to the airport? Can you trust yourself to book an Airbnb? You know, can you trust yourself to to go to cities that have got tons of backpackers so you'll be in a community, you'll be well taken care of, you know? It's like, it comes down to how much can I trust myself in this moment? Can I trust myself to, and I trust myself to, and this, I want to get into your work now. And I trust myself to step into a new career and mm-hmm. I trust myself to take a little tiny shift away from this life that doesn't feel right anymore. And it's this building of it's scary, but I'm going to choose to trust myself that for me, I find expands that level of self-confidence. Because as it grows, we make bigger choices and we grow along with it. Mm-hmm. So how do yeah. you help people now in that? Because I know that you're a career switch coach, which sounds incredible. <laughs> <laughs> how do you help people go from the, oh, crap, I've made a mistake. I'm not where I want to be into choosing something for them.
1: Yeah, I feel like it really starts well, I feel and I know because I see, I see this is things like with careers or jobs, it can feel like that's a thing outside of ourselves, outside of our control and and that we don't actually really have a say. And what that trust piece is huge. So trust, confidence, but then love actually really comes into play because when I talk with folks especially at the beginning there's a lot of fear because of the unknown and there's a lot of almost like imposter syndrome where I'm not qualified for this and so I like stop it there because it's like hold up let's just talk and getting really clear on like what it is do you love to do like what brings you joy what are the things that you like? What are the things that inspire you? And those questions, when I t- start talking with folks about that, oftentimes there's like a job there <laughs> and we don't look at it that way, right? We don't think that the things we love could be things that we could do professionally. Me, me and you know, that's like, you know, we create <laughs> our businesses based on things that we're passionate and love. So it's we know it's possible But as you're kind of navigating, especially for the first time, it can feel like, well, maybe for those people, but I'm, but it's not for me. Like I can't experience my passion or, or it it can feel so outside of yourself. And so the more you can root into, and I say, I help you from the inside out, root into yourself, ground into your values, what matters to you, what you love. You've just created a framework and a foundation as you go out and look for jobs, right? Because. Also a lot of folks have are good at a bunch of different things but they don't like all the things that they're good at. And mm-hmm. so we had this idea just because I'm good at something then I have to do it. And it's like, well, if you dislike that, then stop doing it, stop highlighting it on your resume, stop talking about it. Like let's highlight this thing that you love to do or like where do you feel like you would love to learn more? And so it it's a simple kind of process of like helping folks root in to them because when I talk about looking for a job and switching careers, I've switched from different industries. And so it's definitely possible. And it's more common than I think people feel. So it comes back to love and it comes back to when people go out and look for jobs. I have them think about it like dating. Mm. And especially with women and especially with folks that I've talked to with dating, I see a lot of women, and I was this woman that I was dating. And even if I didn't like the guy, or I went on a date with them, and they didn't text me back, I'd be like, "What's wrong with me? What like I just created this this whole like negative thing? Are they going to accept me? Are they going to like me?" But I never was like, "Hey, I don't even like this person. I don't want to see them, and I don't want to talk to them." But why am I all of a sudden jumping to what's wrong with me? Why why aren't they texting me back? that's the same when people start navigating jobs too. Like we get this narrative of like, someone just accept me. Someone just say that I'm worthy of getting paid. And I don't even care if I'm not getting paid as much. Like I just, I just need someone to say yes. And yeah. so when I kind of reframe job searching, as dating, I'm like full
0: circle back to this. Just let me belong. right? Yep, yeah. Let me belong it's in all- this company. Tell me I'm good enough.
1: Yeah. And that's what it's rooted in because it's like, Actually, why it's so important to ground them in what they love, who they are, then they can know when they go on a date, go on an interview, they can look at this this um, company, these people, and be like, no, this is not a good fit because my needs won't be met here, or you aren't aligned with the values that are really important to me, and you can walk away and say no, and you're not making it a story about who you are as a person. We get this weird guilt. About well, if I'm good at it, then I have to do it. Or if I can do it, then I have to do it, or else I'm bad.
0: Mm. And it's
1: always super interesting because it's like there's very few men that think that way, right? There's very few men that are like, <laughs> well, I don't like doing it, but I feel obligated to do it. They're like, ah, oh, I'm not going to do it. And mm-hmm. so I always like I challenge my clients and I challenge folks. Um, and it's a, like, again, so many things that we do as a practice is I just have folks like pause, just don't respond right away. Right. Cause it can be really hard to not jump in or offer or do the things, especially if you're really competent. Cause there's also the narrative of like, well, I can just do it faster and I can just do it better. I was like, yeah, you can don't. So what I want you to do is when there's like a task or volunteer, like don't volunteer yourself, just be quiet sit there notice how uncomfortable you feel and how much you want to jump in but practice keeping your mouth shut mm-hmm. and then the more you do that you realize how often it's kind of like your your reaction has been trained to like jump in but you can train yourself to be like no not my responsibility if I am at a point when I have capacity and I jump in to help it's because I want to it's because I do have the capacity and so then you're bringing intentionality back into it. And you'll realize too, you're not as burdened. Like you have more space to help others. You have more space to have fun. Um, and that's going back to putting yourself first and being selfish, air quotes is what I'm doing, actually allows you for way more space in your life to help if, if helping is what you want to do. It's not always just to help people, but if helping is what you want to do, I help so much more people now Now that i put myself first and now that I do things for me and that seems counterintuitive, I know, but it's not because I am fully showing up for myself and that allows everyone around me and gives them permission to show up fully too.
0: A hundred percent agree because you've got time when we're stretched so thin, we're barely there, right? But when you've given yourself time, in your calendar to take care of yourself and to only do what you have the capacity to do especially in terms of giving then when you give it's a hundred percent in fully present in joy in flow with the right energy showing up you know yeah. and i've been in that room i love that advice too, Arasan, of just don't put your hand up and i've certainly been in that room plenty of times where i've made that decision of i'm not going to put my hand up and it's really awkward And everyone's Mm. looking at you with those eyes questioning, like, why is your hand not up? You're the person who always does the things. Mm -hmm. And I had to trust that there was somebody, at least one person in the room who was having the equal pain on the opposite end of Mm. having that narrative of I really want to, but I'm not very good at it. And Mm. Wendy's going to put her hand up anyway, or, you know, one of the other leaders in the room will put their hand up because they always do. So, and knowing that there was somebody sitting there just waiting for the opportunity Mm. gave me the ability to wait it out because eventually someone puts their hand up and is really shy and timid and like, well, I've never done it and I might need some help. And is I will help you. I will send you my check sheets. I will help you do this, but I'm not doing it. And well done for stepping up. Yeah. You create space for other people to step up. Arasan, I said before we started recording this that I was willing to just let this chat go any which way it wanted to. And you have been so fluid and generous in allowing this to just morph and change and shift and be such an incredibly deep conversation that I know I'm going to stop recording and then go and listen to the recording immediately to (laughs) suck the marrow out of your bones you have given us so much that it's almost cheeky but I'm going to ask anyway for one last thing. Arisan, Mm -hmm. is there some shit you do for love that you're either still working on, which is cool, we are all a (laughs) work in progress, Or maybe there's something that you've drawn a line under that you want to share that you're like, I don't do that
1: shit for love anymore. What is it? Oh, it's something I'm working on in the fact that I'm working on holding my line. I'm proud that I haven't crossed my line, (laughs) but it's still, I get challenged uh, on it. And that is being everything and anything to men that I date. And bending over backwards like i have done some wild things like help men get degrees and graduate and and do things for like breadcrumbs and i've said you know what <laughs> no again i'm taking i take my own advice and so there's times where i just shut my mouth and i don't say anything i don't volunteer i don't try to help i don't try to fix um because I now don't believe that, you know, we're broken. And that is something that I have drawn a line and hope to continue drawing, because there are times where I slip right into like, let me go do this really elaborate thing for you. And maybe you'll take me to dinner. Maybe not. And I'm like, no more. (laughs) Not worth it. I'm more than that. I'm worthy of it, of myself and my love. And if you can't give it to me, then I can give it to myself and I can walk away.
0: Powerful, powerful words. And what a beautiful image as well of you against your conditioning and the internal voices and the sad puppy dog eyes of whoever you're dating who hold your line and say, no, Mm -hmm. not my problem, buddy. Not my problem
1: not my problem. I'm not here to make your life better so that you can go and throw me out when you're all better.
0: Oh, I feel like you just opened the door into a whole other podcast. That yeah.
1: <laughs> remember, remember that therapist that I needed to get there. That's what we started talking about. <laughs> that was like the, I think I need to become a life coach. So people will pay me for helping them fix their lives, <laughs> not these toxic men. <laughs> That just treat me like shit after I make their lives easier and better.
0: Oh, yes. There's a whole message here (laughs) in wait until they commit and then (laughs) commitment first, please. Commitment first. And of course, commitment to yourself and to holding your line, Arasan. I mean it. I really, I could listen to this podcast immediately afterwards because you went so deep and gave so much of yourself, which was incredibly generous and brave and vulnerable of you. Thank you deeply. Thank you for being here and for sharing your story.
1: Thank you for having me. This was absolutely lovely.
0: I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) What a huge conversation, othering and microaggressions, trying to sit fit in and be enough. How self-acceptance and self-love aren't always comfortable. And then career switching advice. I need a cup of tea. I hope you've loved this episode and gotten a lot out of it. And hey, if you did, please like, review, give it five stars, share the link with your pals. Any and all of these things will help women just like you who want to stop doing shit for love that isn't working. Thank you. We're in this together. I bloody love you.